fellow movie lovers, and welcome to Cult Fiction, a podcast where we examine Hollywood's redheaded stepchildren. As a redheaded stepchild myself, I'm Stephanie Johnson. And I'm Andy Bowell. And today we are pulling open the crypt to review John Borman's Excalibur. Which was a trash fire. Which was a trash fire that, like, started off rocky, but you held out hope, and then the middle was rocky, but you're like, okay, it was it was practically the 70s, and then just devolved into incomprehensible mush. And you're like, oh this is bad and all the people who said it's good don't know what they're talking about well because from the outside looking in it looks okay because we have so many amazing like meryl streep is in this you mean helen Mirren? same white lady she said it (laughs) as a white lady i said it um but like major people are in this and so you expect it to be good. Right. It's not good. Well, I'm just, okay. Like, I think about other films from around the same time period that were much, much better. I think about the original Star Wars. I think about the movie Willow. I think about... Kenneth Branagh's Henry VIII, Henry V, whichever Henry. Same dead white guy. Same dead white guy. That one I'm comfortable saying. (laughs) And this is clearly trying to be that. And I think could only survive in a film-going context, a film-going landscape where no one has really been able to do this thing before. Mm. I feel like this is 100% something you maybe watch as a kid in the early 80s, and it gives you nostalgia goggles, and then you are willing to, like, let the actual quality of the film pass. This made me yearn for Plan 9. (laughs) Yeah, I know. Okay, so... I'll, I'll, I'll get to in case you missed it in a second, but since you've brought that up, this this did become a, a not uncontentious conversation between the two of us <laughs> on exactly where this falls in the list of bad movies we've seen. Kabuz, and hear me out, Plan 9 at least had a followable plot. I would argue you, Plan 9 did not, and you need to... I, I I would never tell anyone they need to rewatch Plan 9, but that was incomprehensible. Okay, aliens come, aliens are mad, aliens don't like humans, aliens want to do away with all the humans, aliens want to do away with all the humans because it's how they saved their planet. There is a plot there. It's bad. Well, and, and the plot of... Excalibur is what in if, case you missed it. What if we just took the entirety of Arthurian legend, every story, every bit, and just made an epic movie about it? And it's gonna be somehow too long, and we're also gonna have to cut out a half hour from it. And it's just there there's nothing we can like not show. In case you missed it, listeners. Excalibur is John Borman's attempt to shoehorn 10 pounds of King Arthur into a three-pound sack. And it starts leaking out of the bottom like Play-Doh and just makes a mess everywhere. (laughs) The, The first half hour of this movie is all about Uther Pendragon. Which is far too much time for what could have been, like, the opening part of a cutscene. And and just there's every, every story, every story of Arthur 
is thrown into this except for Gwen and the Green Knight. Well, and I feel like that's like a little asterisk. Right. Arthur, they're like, yeah, we don't, we're going to put that over there. But we need the whole Lancelot story. We need the whole Percival story. We need the whole Sir Kay story. Like, oh, we need... I locked out the Sir Kay part. We did film debut of Liam Neeson. <laughs> this, this, in case you've missed it, is rambling and awkward because, like, that is the experience of the movie. There's just... There's so many scenes where you're going, oh, I guess we're doing this storyline now. Okay, interesting. Well, in case in point, Helen Mirren, Helen not Mirren. Meryl Streep, plays... Morgana. Morgana. And she just shows up again. Like, we see her as a child in right. the opening scenes. And then she shows up halfway through the movie and Arthur is like, Morgana my sister and you're like oh yeah that's how we're gonna get we're not gonna get any reunion scene between the two of you where you're like you're my sister oh my god no it's just oh yeah that's oh it's like Catherine Maragorn being related to somebody in England when she marries Henry Tudor you want to work on that metaphor again a little bud no <laughs> This movie doesn't deserve it. But to your point, yeah, it is very much like, oh, yeah, all of a sudden we've got Morgana in the court and she's clearly been there a while and clearly no one gives a shit and clearly everyone knows she's Arthur's half-sister. Okay. Okay. We have more movie we need to get to. Which is bizarre because, like, this movie could have either been a tight 90 or five hours. And clear, like, they tried to make the five-hour version, and we're told there's no way you can do a five-hour film. And they went, okay, well, okay, let's do three. We, we, we cut this down to three. It's not as strong as we wanted. And the studio still said, it's got to be two and a half. Sorry. And that's the moment where Borman really started just taking a chopping block to the last hour of this film, because it just starts time skipping incredibly and without any cause and in ways that don't make sense. And the, the search for the Holy Grail is like 15 minutes of film mm -hmm. when clearly it was probably like an hour. Yep. But instead we wound up with 15 minutes. And that boils down to my true problem with this film is why are you trying to do the entire Arthurian myth? Why do you have to do all of it? Yeah. I was saying during the film, like, I, I was picking apart my own self, like, different movies that touch on the same storyline. So, like, another 20 minutes of the film is the Lancelot Guinevere King Arthur love triangle mm -hmm. storyline. Mm -hmm. And the whole time I was just sitting here being like, have you ever seen first night? It's not a bad Richard Gere movie. Sean Connery's King Arthur. It's a lot better than this. Camelot is a lot better than this. Camelot's a lot better than this. Monty Python and the Holy Grail is a lot better than this. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's, so what you were saying about Plato really evokes a certain image. It's just like oozing out between your fingers. Like when you, I got Therapido recently and Mo mm -hmm. and I were playing with Therapido and we both squeezed it too hard and it like came between our knuckles like a, like silly putty Wolverine hands. Sure. And that's what this movie feels like. Feels like silly putty Wolverine hands. And I know that's a weird metaphor, but there's just too much plot. Yeah. And it's trying, it's like trying to fit the Bible. Yeah. Into a tight 90. Bitch, nah. They, they made a Bible miniseries, which is perplexingly only like two episodes, I think. Old Testament, New Testament? I think so. I think that's how they boil it down. And I have not seen this thing, but I have heard that those two episodes are still each like two and a half hours long. Well, sure, you need at least half an hour for the bonkers 
revelation scenes <laughs> right. where like things are on fire but also bleeding. In the name of God, St. Michael and St. George, I give you the right to bear arms and the power to meet justice. That duty I will solemnly obey as knight and king. Henty way. This is not how you take myth and make it into movie. No, no, it is absolutely not. Green Knight. Yes. Is a film that we recently watched together, and that is the recent 2020 The Green Knight starring Dev Patel, which again, like, it, it kind of actually does a lot of this, but better, because the whole plot of The Green Knight is you have the tale of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, but also they throw in a couple of other things they throw mm-hmm. in the story of princess winifred they throw in some fantastical magical sequences mm-hmm. and that is still like a two hour long fantasy epic of a film mm-hmm. but it is so much more cohesive to take a smaller chunk and really pour over it Whereas in this film, we didn't have time to pour over anything. Yeah, it's like you could do one thing really, really, really well, or you could do the broad swath of it badly, and for some reason this movie chose to do that. Right. John Borman was like, no, we need to do all of it. It, it has to be this encapsulating epic, which as I, in real time as I'm saying this, I will say that is if nothing else, it doesn't work, but that is, if nothing else, a refreshing deviation from modern cinema marketing mm-hmm. mind of, oh, well, no, we can just make it a, a trilogy. It has to be a trilogy. Otherwise, it's not profitable. Well, I was going to say, leading into that, the reason John Barrowman... Berman? Berman? Borman? John Barrowman is a completely different and much more attractive human being. Lord, is he. But um, the reason John Borman decided to do this was because he wanted to do Lord of the Rings. And the movie people were like, no, you silly... We have to wait 50 years for that, so Peter Jackson can do it. And you know what? God, we missed a bullet. Like, I would be terrified by John Borman's Lord of the Rings. Because it would be the entire book trilogy crammed into one long movie. And you've got, like... 15 minutes in the Shire, and then 10 minutes with Elrond, and then, oh, okay, we've got to get to Moria. We've got to have Gandalf die by the beginning of the thir- of the end of the first act, because we're going to resurrect him in the middle of the second. Well, at least Tom Bombadil would be there. He'd just be there for all of two seconds, not introduced. That is a completely introduced. different book. He would still be there in the background. You're welcome. Sorry. I wasn't aware I was in the presence of deep nerdery. What have we been doing for 67 episodes? (laughs) 67-ing. Jesus. (laughs) Um, But no, like, I, I sit here and just, like, I don't know who trusted John Borman enough to do this. The man's work up until this point is, like, Not a whole lot. Like, this is the guy who gave us Deliverance. Okay, fine. This is the guy who gave us backwards cannibal hippies trying to eat John Voight. I understand that that film has a place in the cultural zeitgeist. But, like... Eh? Well, and it's giving me Beowulf flashbacks. That is the right comparable, I think. Absolutely. (laughs) Because it's like... It has this very specific thing it's trying to make reference to. And then it goes, oh, here's the source text. Right. (laughs) Well, but even then, like, here's the source text. I'm going to show it in as best detail as I can. But also, I've got three more hours of source text I have to, like, show you yeah because of this metric that i arbitrarily set up for myself i wonder how much of the movie could have been rescued 
if there had been proper lighting and it hadn't been raining the entire goddamn time. <laughs> because there were times where I literally could not see what was happening. Right. Or like the very first thing you see is this nighttime fight sequence. Like that is like how the film opens. And it is as clear as anything has ever been clear on cinema that there are a crap ton of like powerful film lights on the other side of a hill <laughs> shining light over the hill so that things can be backlit. <laughs> I want to go back a second though because I, I agree that Beowulf the, like Beowulf and Excalibur are weird contemporaries mm-hmm. and it's shocking to me but we watched Beowulf 20 episodes ago. Oh my god. Right? We agreed at the time Beowulf was the second worst film we'd ever seen. Worse than The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. Worse than Blood for Dracula. Would you rather watch Beowulf or Excalibur? Uh, this is how we decide, empirically. I already, I mean, I already told you I would rather watch Plan 9. So you already this. said that this is the worst film we have seen. Yes. Because, okay, the first half hour, fine. Whatever. It's bad. But then there's five more of those sure. that I have to sit through. We had to break it up into two because I could not do it anymore. We did indeed. For me personally, the thing of it is, is like none of it is great. Sure. But the first three-fifths of the film are at least like okay. Okay. In my opinion, it really doesn't fall off the rails until the end. I I would have to say, if I had to, I would rather watch Excalibur than Plan 9. But we can disagree. That's I know. That's fine. I'm just, I'm thinking back to the it's a daytime shot, then it's a nighttime shot, then it's a daytime shot situation from Plan 9. Right. And that's just funny because you can sit and watch this and right. be like... Oh, it's bad. And then I'm also sitting here in deep, deep fear because the longer we do this project, the more I know, because this is how statistics work, (laughs) there is another episode, another movie that I'll have to watch and I'll be like, oh my God, Andy, remember Excalibur? It was good compared to this. Apparently, yeah, I mean, that is what we are sitting here discovering, like... I think back to the worst pieces of crap we've seen. I, I think back to weird science, which I hated. I deeply, deeply hated. Oh my god, I miss weird science. I completely forgot the that the adventures of Baron von Poopy Pants was a thing. Sure. So when you said it, I was like, the what? Oh yeah. The other movie that is like nigh incomprehensible. I think I think in a macro sense, that is what we are determining is like the things that truly make a film bad uh-huh. are a complete breakdown, lack of any even any sense of followable structure. I mean, there, but for my knowledge of Athorian lore, go I, because there were so many parts of this where I was like, okay, this is what's happening. Right. But that's because... I majored in English literature and shout out to Dr. Tamara Wilson, who was like, okay, here's exactly what's going on for all of Athurian lore. And that woman painstakingly taught us Athurian lore because she's Pelopagan and was mm. like, here's where women are mentioned. Um, but except for all of that, I would have been like, what is happening? <laughs> And even then, like, we sat here and so, okay, listeners, this is a warning for talk of sexual abuse and sexual violence. Um, Skip the next two minutes just to avoid that if that's something that is, you know, triggering. This movie starts with our ostensible protagonists, Uther and Merlin, conniving so that Uther can rape 
a woman he has the hots for. Which, has that always been a thing? Apparently. That was the thing we had to sit here and be like, is this the story of King Arthur? Is this how this... Is he a child is this, of... Is this, uh, this, uh, how uh, this is? And apparently in the original telling, the whole point is that Arthur is a bastard child. Okay. And when I say that the first half hour was bad and then it gets worse, listeners, I don't mean in, in context of, well... I was going to say, I don't mean in context of sexual assault, but we also have the sexual assault of Arthur by Morgana. Yep. And it is very easy as a woman to be like, oh, well, it's different. No, like, no, rape is rape. Yeah, I mean, the most, I, I would... I would give anybody who tried to make this argument shit, so I'm not trying to make it in in Mm. real faith. Sure. But the most you can say is the narrative parallel between Uther raping Morgana's mother and Morgana raping Arthur in the exact same way. Because both times it is the use of magic to make the victim think that they are with somebody else. There is a narrative parallel there but i don't know what you're even supposed to do with that merlin can you make her love me now look i once stood exposed to the dragon's breath so that a man could lie one night with a woman it took me nine moons to recover and offer this lunacy called love this mad distemper that strikes down both beggar and king i will say um in some Arthurian lore, when Arthur and Morgana have sex, they don't know they're related. Mm. So there is that. Sure. So when we have Mordred, it's kind of like, haha, here I am. And then it's like, haha, I have too many toes. <laughs> right. Which, okay, let's talk about Mordred. Mordred is upsettingly terrifying in this film okay but we can't say that because he was john borman's kid i can say that absolutely his kid was creepy john (laughs) borman directed his kid to be creepy (laughs) i thought you meant in the face (laughs) oh no in the affectation in the acting in the weird little maniacal child laugh that says I know too much about what's happening in this situation for how old I am. Also, I'm a nine-year-old in a suit of armor with, like, faces for the pauldrons. What did I tell you? He reminds me of um, Robin of the Moondor from Yes, that's exactly, that is exactly what you told me. Like, this kid looks like he was nursing for far too long. Yes. Which is a crueler thing than anything I I said. Yeah, probably. (laughs) But bravo to Borman for directing his own children. Bravo to one of his children being the Lady of the Lake. Sure. Who's in a river. That part is, yeah, that part is objectively like, okay, all right, good on you. Yeah. But yes, Mordred is creepy as all hell, as all children are gonna be. Sure, sure. But yeah, so this this film takes us through a half hour of Uther. Uther plotting and the conception of Arthur. And you have Merlin being like kind of this snarky sidekick dick. But at the end of the day, he's like, oh, okay, yeah, I'll help you fix the thing. I'll help you... I'll help you assault your a woman. I'll help you do some light sexual violence. Yeah, why not? It's fine. Um, and you're sitting here as the audience member, just being like, "This is this is what we're this is how we're starting." This the where's our who are we rooting for? Because I'm not rooting for Gabriel Byrne. <laughs> I'm kind of rooting for William Nick, Nick, Nickel Williamson. I'm kind of rooting for William Nicholson, which, by the way, returning to cult fiction, William Nicholson, who was the Gnome King in Return to Oz. Which is one of my favorite parts of Return to Oz. Which, yeah, is such, it's so funny how in both of these, he is absolutely, also I got it wrong, it's Nickel Williamson. 
He is absolutely overacting and chewing the scenery to death, but there's something about him being a more fantastical creature in the Gnome King mm-hmm. that is the entire difference between it being the best part of the movie and just more silly obnoxiousness. See, I was here for Merlin, other than other sure. than the obvious. I was here for Merlin because he was the only actor who was like, okay, I can follow your freaking motivation. Whereas Arthur is all over the place. Arthur is not a good character in no. this movie. Guinevere, you can follow her motivation because she's a literal piece of cardboard. You can follow her motivation because her motivation is that dick. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> Girl, same! <laughs> but also, Lancelot is very two-dimensional. He is yeah. is strong, is boy, is manly. Is conflicted because loves Guinevere enough to do something about it, but not enough to, like, stand up and do it in a way that isn't just backhanded and shitty. Oh, I don't know. They forest bone. They forest bone. They get covered in mosquito bites as they forest bone. (laughs) Which, oh my gosh, is someone prone to mosquito bites? When I read that fact on IMDb, the two actors were just covered from head to toe in mosquito bites. I'm like, oh, that causes a visceral reaction. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, bless you enough that you're even like, Doing a a nude scene, which is harrowing in its own right, but then you get a mosquito bite on your ass. Yeah. Well, this is also like, I think, 20 miles from the director's home. So I'm like, you didn't bring bug spray for the poor people filming? (laughs) No, it's got to be realistic. They would have been getting bug bites in their medieval fuck sesh. Bug spray, <laughs> which is my my logic for whenever I have a video call and I have not showered that day, and I'm like, ah, eh, no one's gonna see that I smell. <laughs> not getting the pig pen lines. No. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but no. So like this again. I feel like we're kind of meandering and going all over the place, but that is an accurate representation of how this film works. Yeah. Like. Arthur is introduced, and I don't even think we see him as a kid. I think we see him as a baby. We see him as a baby, Merlin, and then we see him as a youth. Yeah, Merlin walks away with a baby and is like, Aha, Uther, I will claim your baby now. And then Uther dies just like um, the king in the Fellowship of the Ring. Uh, in the mud and cold and scared and alone. Sure. <laughs> Um, then we see Nigel Terry, like, doing his best to act like he's 18, and we see, we see baby Arthur, and then we see youth Arthur just walking around with an implausible Irish accent. Like, a distracting, the choice was, we're gonna make King Arthur Irish. Irish as hell, like Faith and Megara, Irish. <laughs> and then we just go from there. Like the next time we see him, he's practically pulling the sword from the stone. Which, in due credit, like that scene alone, I do enjoy the sequence where all the knights are fighting over the right to pull the sword from the stone. You see, oh my god, it's a pre-next-generation Patrick Stewart, returning to cult fiction, try to lift the sword from the stone and fail, and then Arthur's just like, ah, shit, I need a sword. Yank, oh shit, I just pulled from the sword from the stone. I shouldn't be able to do that. Puts it back, and then no one can take it. I love that Excalibur has the same rules as Mjolnir, but only when it's in the stone. <laughs> I mean, there's some love and joy to that. It's like the the sword chooses its person. And I appreciate that. And that's probably one of the only scenes that I'm like, yes, they give this particular moment 
it's due. It's that. And when we have the joust over um, Guinevere's honor. Right. And those are the only two scenes that are given actual meat to them. And the rest of them are like, here, let me give you the spark notes version of this important thing. Right, yeah, because, so, like, the other thing, the, the I think the thing that encapsulates it the best is the character of Percival is introduced a little less than halfway through the film. Lancelot's riding around. He sees a peasant. The peasant's like, oh, can I join you? I'm going to run the whole way. And he does. And then this schmuck is wandering around Camelot, which is a very strange Camelot, by the way. Like, you told me that they thought they were going to shoot Lord of the Rings. I guarantee you they built that set thinking it was going to be Rivendell, (laughs) Kingdom of the Elves, because all of the pendulums up in trees and the weird, like, it's a castle, but there's no ceiling. It's open air. We have this schmuck wandering around. He sees all the knights and goes, oh, I'd quite like to do that. He tries to be the one to step up and fight uh, Liam Neeson's Gawain for Guinevere's honor. Doesn't get the opportunity. And then the next time you see him, he has been a knight of the round table for like 15 years. And off you go on the quest for the grail. And he's the one who is like having these weird death flashbacks in which he almost sees the grail. And for 20 minutes... Percival is like our hero. This guy who was introduced a half hour before as like, oh yeah, he's this weird peasant dude. And now he's our hero. And now he's Arthur's right-hand man. And it's it just goes like that. You know what this is? This movie is King Arthur lore bingo. It's just oh, the bingo card. Yeah. So your wife is showing me the L word right now and we made like an L word bingo card of like, bet cries because she has to face the consequences of her own damn actions (laughs) and where's the baby? This is King Arthur lore version. Sexual tension between Guinevere and Lancelot. References to uncertain parentage, but it's not any depth. Right. The script is wrong. The writing is wrong. The pacing is wrong. The view is wrong. There's no time to go into any depth. And the moments that you do, do manage to at least start to work. Right. But then we go away from them far too quickly. Right. So even, okay, so the ill-fated sex scene where both actors got covered in mosquito bites actually was a pretty decent scene. Now, granted, it came out of nowhere and its context within the script is bizarre, but the scene itself, given the context of Arthurian lore and given that, like, assuming you know what happens, okay, Guinevere is married to Arthur. She's been fated to be with him, but there is also Lancelot in this entire time. She has been in love with Lancelot, has been trying to not give in to him, finally gives in to him, takes his sword into her hand, which is like very like heavy <laughs> symbolism for uh-huh. this movie, but I appreciate it. And then they have this moment that's really strong and there's like really sweeping music and I'm like, okay, it's cheesy, it's 70s, it's ridiculous and it came on way too quick. This particular scene I'm here for. And then it goes away from that super fucking quickly. And we're off to like three different things. Right. We simultaneously get like Arthur sees this in a dream and like leaves Excalibur and has like pollution of the soul. And at the same time, we have Merlin being like, I'm piecing out of this mother. And Morgana being like, but you were going to teach me dark magic beyond my comprehension. And so now I'm going to, like, screw you over somehow. Now, yeah. Okay, like, (laughs) this movie has a sequence where Merlin brings Morgana into his magic lair, 
reveals this is where all the magic is, and it kind of just goes like Morgana's like, aha, you fool, this is where the magic was. And then all of a sudden Merlin is like locked in ice. And it's he's, just that. He's Superman's daddy. <laughs> yeah, okay, I'll take it. <laughs> and Morgana's like, ha ha ha, Superman's dad. Ha 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 ha, Zor-El. I will now go have sex with my half-brother. Weirdly, and have feelings about it. So it's true that the pacing in this is off, but you know what I think it is? Wow. I think it's John Berman being like, okay, I can't make my five-hour movie I wanted to make. First of all, I can't make the franchise I wanted to make. Right, yeah. I can't make the five-hour movie I wanted to make. I have to cut it down to this amount of time. I'm going to pick and choose the scenes that I truly care about and that I truly love. And I'm going to slave over them and mm. I'm going to love them and I'm going to polish them. And then the rest of it, I'm going to leave it up to people to just kind of ignore. Because let's be honest, this is a movie you kind of ignore. I really think so. Good and evil. There never is one without the other. Where hides evil then in my kingdom? Always where you never expected. So I appreciate his dedication to the corest of core Aetherian lore, which is that at the end of the day, Arthur was betrayed by both his wife and his best friend, the two people he loved best in the world. Right. Which is great. But like, that story already happened, friend. It's a musical. It's great. You should watch it sometime. The Kennedys were obsessed. <laughs> Leave it to them. Yeah, I agree. And and so you saying that just glued me into something. I this this film came out in 1981, so let's just call it the 70s, because it might as well have been. Sure. And the greatest like action movies of the 70s, like the thing that like were capturing people's attention. Was stuff like Dirty Harry and Assault on Precinct 13 and Death Wish and Star Wars and Rocky and The Warriors and Mad Max and The French Connection and all of these things that are all contemporary to the time or future stories. Mm. For whatever reason, we were not looking at the past as the thing we were getting our epic action from in this decade. And so the thing, so John, to, for John Mormon to come in and be like, I'm going to tell this story um, is kind of like giving water to all of the drowning nerds yeah that were desperate for fantasy you know what came out a year after this film conan the freaking barbarian with the guy with the guy and the stuff and the stuff Aww. with the warm yourself by my fire and the like reignition invention of like, oh my god, magical sword and sorcery is like gonna be a thing now again. And this came out the year before that trend got restarted. This is how I know this is one of the worst movies I've seen. You said the title and I got warm fuzzies. <laughs> <laughs> you don't miss you 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 don't miss uh What's his face? Um, James Earl Jones, Snake Monster. <laughs> no, I got warm fuzzies because you because you said the name, and I was like, "I'll remember that movie." We were so young, so baby. We were so young, so baby. It is infinitely more entertaining than this. That's the movie that told us it's okay to hold space for your barbarian friend. <laughs> Nobody holds space for shit in in Excalibur. Because there's no space in Excalibur. It's a six-hour tale told in two and a half hours. Indeed. Good but also, Lord. like, I think about what a rage monster King Arthur becomes throughout this film. <laughs> yeah. And he just needed somebody to, like, talk through it with him instead of fuck off to a nunnery because they 
had sex with somebody else. Are you implying that it's a wife's duty to provide therapy? No. Percival also could have done this instead of, like, get lost in the woods. Lancelot could have done this instead of fuck off and become a crazy murder hobo. Like, the way this movie goes is it's straight up, like, Lancelot and Guinevere bone. They wake up and Excalibur is plunged into the ground between them. They both, like, cry and lament and literally run off. And then the movie doesn't tell you what happens to them for, like, another half hour. So you're sitting there being like, is is that... Are they dead? Are they gone? Did they just literally run out of this movie? Are they, like, are they living in an Animal Crossing house somewhere? What is happening? Only for you to find out, Guinevere has, like, joined an honorary. Because, LOLK, that's not one of the biggest things to happen to Guinevere if you ever read Athorian lore. Right. And Lancelot becomes, like, the guy screaming in the village town about how the world's ending. <laughs> Aww. He joined a cult. <laughs> <laughs> I will say so many movies that happen, so many narratives in our world would have been prevented if a man had just gone to therapy. Oh, absolutely. Like yeah. King Arthur rolls up in therapy and he's like, okay, doc, so here's the thing. My wife is cheating on me with my best friend. And the therapist goes, wow, Arthur, that sounds really hard. And Arthur goes, oh my God, thanks, doc. It is really hard. And the therapist says... You know, when people break our boundaries, it's really difficult. And King Arthur goes, yeah, it is. And then the therapist says, so we should have a conversation with the people that hurt us. And he goes, (laughs) yeah, I should. And then he goes home and has a serious talk with Lancelot and Guinevere. And they go, we're sorry. And then they talk about how they can resolve their issues. And then we don't have like the corruption of England as a thing itself and like the 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 withering of Arthur's soul because all of a sudden he's connected to the very land somehow my my second biggest problem with this besides the fact that it just tries to do everything this presentation of Arthur does nothing to justify his status and worth and position he pulls the sword from the stone and like takes part in defense of a siege of patrick stewart's castle and that's it every other thing you see him do in the film he is being an impetuant asshole to lancelot the first time he meets him he is being like this impotent Joe Biden. Oh, I am above the the means. I can't be the one to intervene on this, my wife. I can't be the one to defend your honor because, see, I'm the one in charge. So it wouldn't be right if I did anything to, like, save your reproductive rights. I can't. Woo! (laughs) We see him do that shit. We see him, like, literally, like, get scurvy because his best friend and his wife had sex and didn't include him. Well, he has to go to St. Augustine to get the oranges. (laughs) Right, exactly. (laughs) And then at the end, he's like, okay, wait, no, I'm back. I'm good, guys. I I got the sword, and and we need to kill my my homicidal uh, sibling son. And, and this is what we're going to do now. Okay, guys? And uh, Yeah, okay. Okay, everybody. Okay. Oh, I've been impaled by my sibling's son, but it's okay because I'm going to stab him. Okay, now I'm dead. So what you're saying is the men in this lore do not service the actual concept that's standing behind them yes but i'm saying only arthur really you think lancelot is lancelot de Lac? i do in this film he he presents himself as a a mm. man of 
honor and and sportsmanship and grace and is so incredibly like sexy slash horny at the same time that it becomes his own undoing (laughs) for all the shit i give percival they like make a thing of how i'm going to continue this thought for all the shit i give percival like he still manages to as a character at least be kind of like noble and once we get to the point of him being a knight he is knightly i feel like sure long de grance is patrick stewart he gets a pass gawain is supposed to be shitty in this one so okay he can be shitty and like no one else actually matters well that's the thing i feel like so many of the characters are just like bit roles right And that kind of brings me to my reading recommendation for this because so much of this movie focuses really, really hard on the um, male roles, as often is a thing with the Thurian lore. Um, But there is a feminist retelling of the Thurian lore. Okay. Um, It is on Netflix and it stars the impeccable Catherine Langford, who you Mm. might know as the main character from 13 Reasons Why. Right. And it is called Cursed and it focuses on all of the female characters of the King Arthur tale. And then it's like all of the King Arthur shit is happening in the background. Right. So it's like the film negative of the Arthur tale. It's very good. So it's less of a reading wreck, more of a watching wreck. Um, There are some really good reviews. You can look them up. But I think that's more of a worthy tale than this at the very least. I think so. I I cannot get over how beloved this film seems to be for what it actually is. Mm Mm-hmm. And I I truly feel like the only reason why is because it had aesthetic that was unserved to the fan base of the time. Like the whole thing, Merlin has this weird chrome skullcap situation thing. (laughs) And I've seen that on Wizards like all over the place in little D&D figures and paintings and old books from my dad's bookshelf and that sort of stuff. Like, that is a thing. Uther Pendragon has, like, a dragon face on his helmet. That's a thing. Like, this is just the vibes. Yeah. I will say Helen Mirren has a breastplate in this Mm -hmm. movie that lives in John Berman's home. And he has left that to her in his will. As he should. He's like, I'm going to have this in my house until I die. And after that, it's Helen's. <laughs> fair enough. Yeah, absolutely fair enough. Which brings me to my Oscar, which I really struggled for for this movie. Okay. But if I may take us into our ending segments. Absolutely. I would like to give my Oscar to Helen Mirren for trying her goddamn best. <laughs> for just trying her best. And not giving, not being given much to work with. Correct. Like, this speaks to the problems of the film where Morgana is kind of the big bad. But in like, an Completely unsupported by the text way. Right, completely unsupported by the text and dies, like, so anticlimactically. Correct. Merlin just shows up one day and goes, gotcha, bitch. And then all of a sudden, <laughs> she's like, her her youthful beauty has evaporated and then her son kills her, because why not? Her son kills her because he doesn't recognize her because he's like, mother, you are always youthful. Mm-hmm. How could you be ugly? Oh, because the worst thing to be as a woman is old and ugly. Don't we all know? Haven't we learned? <laughs> we have to all buy retinol at the age of 22. Or use dark magic to... 
Shit, Keep bitch, can you tell me for. where the dark magic is? Because I would use that. Sure. <laughs> it would be a lot cheaper. Indeed. No, I, I completely support that Oscar. I support Helen Mirren being in a lot of bad movies. Like I, I also know this because of an old college course. They made a uh, an old movie called Caligula, which is based off of the Roman Emperor. And sure. it has every British actor under the sun. And is most well known for having like fairly accurate, depraved orgy scenes. Cool. Including including Dame Helen Mirren. But no, I love that Oscar. Um, it, it's... You this. just said, I love that for you. <laughs> <laughs> Which is the queer version of, oh, sweetie, bless your heart. Do I love that for you? Do I love that for Helen Mirren? I love that for her. <laughs> I appreciate your Oscar. I'll <laughs> say that a little bit more genuinely because I mean it. And I will include my own. I, I think this doesn't do a lot of things well, this film. It doesn't oh, do a lot of things even, like, to the extreme. But what it does have, and what I am going to give it, is the Oscar for shiniest armor. <laughs> uh, uh, what? <laughs> Arthur and his knights. The way you know they're the knights of the round table, at a glance is they are walking around in the most reflective, shiny, polished aluminum ass plate mail armor that I have never seen in any fantasy property besides this film. You know why it is? It's because Lancelot's sitting in the corner being like, I'm gonna make it so clean, so clean, so clean. Like, he's, like, weirdly obsessed with making everyone's armor shiny. Well, yeah, for a while, that's the only thing he can do to, like, abate his raging Guinevere heart on. He's, like, jacking off and then, like, shining armor and then jacking off and then shining armor. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he's got to keep busy. got to keep his hands busy. <laughs> no, I mean, just this... This movie, like, I remember one scene from this movie as a kid, and it's only because I remembered the shiny-ass armor. I thought you remembered a sex scene from this movie. I remember the scene where Lancelot is naked, which is why I thought it was a sex scene, but it's the one where he's dreaming by the lake, and then a, a specter in armor attacks him and, and stabs him through the thigh. But it was all a dream, but he was actually stabbed in the thigh. Which that, that isn't night, a sex scene. Which is, there's penetration. Oh my god. <laughs> so that is what I remember is the shiny, shiny, shiny armor. Fair enough. You know what I also remember? What else do you remember? My Kevin Bacon. Did you remember it? I do. Tell me everything. I am happy to. On every episode of Cult Fiction, we like to play the game Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon, where you've got to connect actors to the estimable Kevin Bacon in six moves or less. And the way that I can do that in this film, Dame Helen Mirren was in Red 2 with John Malkovich. John Malkovich was in Queen's Landing with Kevin Bacon. You literally stole my Oscar. You, you mean your bacon? My bacon. <laughs> you literally stole my bacon. Oh, no. I have the same exact bacon. <laughs> Has this happened before? I don't think so, because I'm looking through my text messages, and I'm, then I'm like, wait. Simona, Simona, Simona. Oh, no. Oh, has this happened before? Never, ever has it happened before. Oh, fascinating. We have the exact same bacon. We have the exact same bacon. I, I think that's allowed. I think it's okay. Well, congratulations to us. Good on us. Yay. For knowing our John Malkovich films. <laughs> this also means, uh, I, I think... Retroactively, I don't know if we did the being John Malkovich, Kevin Bacon in one or not. Oh, I can't remember. That was a while ago. I definitely didn't pull out the film Queen's Logic 
It wasn't Queen's Landing. It was Queen's Logic for that. So <laughs> Queen's Landing. Also very accurate for this movie. Indeed. You know what else is accurate for this movie? What? The fact that it's cult as hell, I guess. Cult as hell in that it has a, like... Die hard fan, uh, die hard fan base of fantasy grandpas. Fantasy grandpas. Like the people who were playing D and D when that shit came out. Aww, <laughs> I love that for them. And, and they can watch this, and they can just like revel about how fantasy films were better back in the day. And then be referencing this movie, which is probably a thought that we shouldn't examine too no. too closely. I was going to say, so it's certainly didn't make its money back, no? You would actually be shocked to find out that it tripled its budget. No, it did not. It did. This cost $11 million to make and it grossed 34 Oh, I'm disappointed. America, do better. I mean, again, like, this was a thing where, like, people were going, oh, my God, finally, a sword and sorcery film. Uh, you know what? Okay, fair enough. I suppose. I don't know. I do not agree with the cult quality of this film. You go on IMDb, and it is nothing but people praising it as the greatest Arthurian tale ever told. And I would... I would hold up Quest for Camelot, and I would be right. <laughs> um, I was going to say, you know it's not a good Arthurian tale when I can literally be like, Sword in the Stone was a better movie. Quest for Camelot was a better movie. Sword in the Stone was a better movie. Sword in the Stone took the best part of this movie and made the entire film about that. Exactly. <laughs> Although now I'm thinking of that little blonde boy grown up and being like, my best friend and my wife are boinking each other. Hmm. hmm. I'm going to go turn into a squirrel about it because that's how Merlin solved all his problems. Jesus Christ. Oh, wait, that squirrel wanted to bone Arthur. I forgot that. What? Do you remember? Oh, no, I that... probably burnt it out of my brain. Oh, in Disney's King Arthur... There is a, in Disney's Sword in the Stone, there is a scene where Arthur is like transmogrified into a squirrel. And there is a lady squirrel that falls head over heels in love with him. Oh my gosh, this is scratching like the very back of my brain where I put all my childhood stuff. And like that squirrel gets a moment when he turns back into a human to be sad about it. The squirrel's like, oh, I can't bone a human. I'm just gonna infect a lot of weird thoughts in children over this. Oh, wait, was the squirrel sexy? The squirrel was a squirrel. Okay, the squirrel was a squirrel, but Robin Hood as a fox was sexy. So, like, don't the come at me. The squirrel was not as sexy as Robin Hood as okay. a fox. Okay, thank you. Or made Marion as a fox. As the case may be. As the case may be, depending on your sexual leanings, or maybe both, who's to say? Or maybe <laughs> neither, who's to say? You know, who else is who's to say? The next movie we watch, which is not who's to say, but the Crips to say. Sure, yeah, that's a good segue. <laughs> Pulled that one out of nothing. <laughs> Every episode of Cult Fiction, we uh, turn our fate to the Hollywood Crypt to tell us what the next film we need to watch is. And sometimes it's an amazing piece of, like, Com contemplative beautiful revenge art like Blue Ruin and sometimes it's this movie that is not for us <laughs> but we have 279 films on the list and putting it through a random number generator the crypt wants us to watch next time on cult fiction number 70 and number 70 is a 1988 sci-fi musical by director Julian Temple called Earth Girls Are Easy. Okay. If I remember right, this film is famous or maybe infamous as the case may be for having 
a African American guy play the alien. Yikes. Where but is it available for watching at this time? At time of recording, uh, Earth Girls Are Easy is available for free on Tubi TV, Vudu, Amazon Prime, and Plex. Wow. This has Jeff Goldblum, Jim Carrey, and Gina Davis. Well, I will watch anything with Queen Gina Davis in it. And I will watch anything with Lord Jeff Goldblum. <laughs> Boy, howdy. <laughs> well, that's all for this edition of Cult Fiction. If you want to follow along, you can join us on Twitter at Cult Fiction Cast. You can also follow, rate, review, and do whatever you do with your podcasts on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll close the crypt for now. But join us next time when we are confronted with and hopefully find the answer to the question... Are Earth Girls Easy? For Stephanie Johnson, I'm Andy Boel. I